0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to the Vista. It's good to see you here today. If we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Uh, Today, we're starting a a brand new series called Advent. And if you are uh, new to this whole Christianity thing, or maybe just back at church for the first time in a really long time, uh, A, we are really glad that you joined us. B, you might be wondering what this word Advent means and what it has to do with Christmas. Good questions. So the word Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which comes from the Greek word parousia, which is used in Scripture to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? And so Advent is a season in which Christians all over the world, or Christians all over the world right now are doing this. Uh, we gather together and we remember that once upon a time, Jesus visited us, right? And we also remember that in a future time, Jesus will come in glory to visit us again. And so Advent is a season that reminds us that we are to live with the remembrance that Jesus visited us, with the expectation that he will do so again, and then with the constant awareness of his constant presence with us in this time in between Jesus's first and second comings where you and I live, right? We live in between the first and second comings of Christ. And as you might expect this remembrance, this expectation, and this awareness that causes us to live the next few weeks, or at least it should, a little bit out of step with the rest of the world around us. Because instead of speeding up, right, no, we, we gear things down a little bit. We slow down. Instead of uh, mindlessly purchasing loads of crap that neither we nor anybody else really needs in a desperate attempt to show others love and affection, anybody else? We give simple gifts of time Attention and compassion. Instead of bunkering down with our families, you know, keeping everybody else away, we, we open up our families for those who might need a place to belong. And so we're glad that you joined us. We hope you will continue to do so over the next few weeks so that when you actually get to Christmas, Advent has prepared your heart to receive it as the gift that it is really meant to be. If you got your Bibles, we'll be in Isaiah 64. Now we'll have it on the screen as well. With Isaiah 64, and we will primarily be in the book of Isaiah for all four weeks of Advent. And that's because Isaiah is filled with these classic Advent themes of joy and hope. Yeah, but also waiting, disappointment. The prophet Isaiah speaks to and on behalf of this Israelite community that had seen God move in profound ways. You remember, let my people go, parting of the Red Sea, all this stuff that had received enormous promises from God but that it also experienced enormous disappointment because many of God's promises seemed unfulfilled. And if you have been at Vista for any amount of time, you know we pride ourselves on being very honest about the fact that quite often, God can be very disappointing, can't he? I mean, any of you in here ever been disappointed by God before? Yeah, before church today? You know, of course. Because God has, you know, what failed to give us the promotion we feel like we deserved. Or God's, God's failed to save our marriages or our parents' marriages. Or God's let loved ones die too soon. We did a funeral this week for someone, 36 years old, precious Vista member. That's too soon, man. God has allowed us to live with these struggles and handicaps that make life almost unbearably difficult. God hasn't done enough to help, you know, the cowboys. Why, Lord, so long? We didn't know how good we had it with Dak. All that to say, Isaiah is a good Advent guide because he, he mirrors and he exhibits that joy, right, that joyful but also painful waiting that's at the heart of Advent and that's at the heart of being a human being living in between the first and second coming of Christ in this beautiful but broken world of ours. All right, so if you got your Bibles, Isaiah 64, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It will be on the screen for you. Isaiah is pretty easy to find. Just turn to the middle, Psalms, a little bit more to the right, find Isaiah. It's a big book. So what the prophet says. says, O oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of all they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one. Who waits for him. Now you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in him for a long time, and shall we now be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. There's nobody who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us, delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We're the clay, you're the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. So don't be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. So we can't be completely sure, but it seems very likely that the, uh, the context for this, this passage, which is essentially a prayer, right, that Isaiah is praying on behalf of Israel to God, is probably best understood in the context of the return from the Babylonian exile. Okay, so long story short, quick history lesson many Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire and exiled over to Babylon in 586. It's one of the central events in the latter portion of the Old Testament. And they're over there for 50 years, okay? For 50 years, they're in captivity in Babylon. But then something remarkable happens. The Persian Empire topples the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians, uh, the Persians then let the uh, Israelite exiles go back uh, to the promised land. And it's remarkable, God has delivered the people of Israel back home again. But the really interesting thing about homecomings It's how incredibly uh, disappointing they can be. You, You understand my meaning here. You just went home for Thanksgiving, a lot of you, right? Those homecomings, they're never quite what you thought they would be. And so all these captives, they finally get back home after being in exile for 50 years. Many of them have never even been to the promised land, right? They grew up for 50 years in exile. But they've heard all these idyllic stories about how awesome Jerusalem is oh man, and how, how grand the temple is and how perfect things are gonna be when they finally get back home to the promised land and then they finally get back home and things, uh, they're not perfect, right? Jerusalem's a mess, it's been kind of destroyed. The temple is in ruins then there's all this conflict between the returning exiles who've been gone for 50 years and the people who still lived in the land. I mean, can you imagine that? Was like You finally get back home. It's been 50 years. You can't wait to get to your house and see that coffee cup that was left there when you got ripped out of your home and sent back to exile in a foreign country and you walk in the front door and there's somebody else living in your house, man. Who are you? I've been living here for 50 years. Who are you? Well, I built this house. Remember, how are we going to settle this? Paper, rock, scissors, TikTok battle? I don't know. It'd be a very difficult and frustrating situation. And so God delivered them brought him back home and it was awesome but the awesome very quickly wore off as it tends to and so what do you do when the awesome wears off well I'll tell you what you do You pray a prayer like this, okay? Let's read verses one through two again. prophet says, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. And I just love this prayer, right? Because it's a prayer that is loaded with conviction and passion. Can you just feel the heat radiating off this prayer? Right, Isaiah, on behalf of Israel, is like, God, hey, I don't know if you wake up there, knock, 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 but I need you to come and do something about this. You need to rend the heavens and come down. You need to set things on fire. You need to burn all the nonsense down to the ground, God. A few months ago, I had the the privilege of attending a rally for justice and peace that had been put on by the NAACP in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Some of y'all were there. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to these African-American community leaders and pastors as they speak And as they pray, and y'all, I'm just telling you, you ain't heard prayers like this before. Because these were the prayers of people who were just so exhausted and so angry. But even more than that, they were prayers that were just loaded with expectation. You understand what I mean by that? that They were the prayers of people who genuinely expected God to come do something about this. They're saying, God, I don't know if you're seeing what's happening right now, but we need you to wake up. You're on the clock. We need you to come do something about this right now. And I don't know if you've noticed, but most of our prayers, certainly my prayers, they don't really sound like the prayers of people who expect God to do something. Now, most of our prayers are what I like to call, uh, maybe I'll teach you a new word this morning, bourgeois prayers, right? Bourgeois prayers. They're these, uh, you know, uh, comfortable middle to upper middle class prayers that are more like obligatory, half-hearted solicitations, you know, where we kind of ask God to maybe do something because we don't really expect God to do anything, right? Bourgeois prayers are like, God, Um, please just maybe if you could keep me and my loved ones kind of safe maybe and then maybe if you got some time kind of maybe make the world kind of a better place right bourgeois prayers and so i read a prayer like this in isaiah 64 you know radiating with expectation and i ask myself do you think we're capable of praying prayers like this are you capable of praying and saying god Rin the heavens and come down, set things on fire and I need you to burn all the nonsense to the ground. God, you need to come, you need to do something about this. I expect you to do something about this. I think if we're honest, most of us would have to admit that we don't really have this prayer in us because we're so confident in ourselves and we have such low expectation of God that prayers like this They're just really not in our vocabulary. We don't got them in the bag, man. Which is a very sad place to be. Because perhaps the only thing worse than expecting God to give you everything you want. Is expecting God to do nothing. And I think a lot of us in here probably struggle more with expecting God to do nothing. All right? So Isaiah, on behalf of disappointed Israel, he prays this prayer filled with expectation and demand prayers. We struggle praying. Then after asking God to rend the heavens and come down, we get this subtle little suggestion at the end of verse 2. Okay, here's what he says. Make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. So Isaiah, he's, he's asking, he's expecting God to come do something. Then in verse 2, he gets a little bit more specific. He says, God, you need to come do something. And to be more specific, you need to come and do something about them. Now, them in this context is who? Well, it's, it's the nations, right? These nations that have throughout Israel's history oppressed, conquered, insulted, belittled Israel. And this is a very common prayer in the Old Testament. It's literally like half of the prayers in the book of Psalms, if you've noticed. It's the people of Israel going, God... You, you need to come do something about our enemies, man. Don't know if you've noticed, not doing great here. It would be nice if you would be on your throne and do your thing and, you know, make our enemies tremble, let justice rain down from the heavens on them. And I would be willing to bet that this is a prayer that you are very capable of, yeah? I mean, I don't know about you, but this is, this is one of my favorite prayers to pray. This is one of Austin Fisher's favorite prayers. You know what I mean? God, yeah, you need to, you, you know, help my boss see my worth. God, you need to convict my spouse of their suffering. God, you need to deliver me from my parents. God, fix my kids for God's sake. Right, you've prayed prayers like this. They're very delightful to pray. And to be clear, uh, you know, this can be an acceptable prayer to pray. Because sometimes God does need to come do something about them. Because people can be difficult and sinful and the world's fallen. <clears throat> and God is utterly committed to setting the world right. And so the problem is not this prayer. Rather, the problem is when this prayer becomes the only prayer you know how to pray. Yes, yes. The problem is when you have convinced yourself that the primary problem is them. That's the problem. And we spent uh, a couple of months on this a few weeks back in a series called Us for Them, so I'm not gonna relitigate it, but I'll just say this. If you have convinced yourself that your job that your marriage, that your friendships, that your church, that your community, that the world, if you've convinced yourself that all that stuff could be fixed if God would just do something about them, if you've convinced yourself of that, then you are deeply delusional. And I say that with all the love of Christ in my heart. But you are, you are deeply delusional. And you are a very long way from finding healing, if you think God fixing them would sort everything out for you, okay? Which brings us back once again to Isaiah's prayer. So let's pick it back up in verse five because in verses five through seven, Isaiah makes this breakthrough, this breakthrough that so few of us are able to make. It says, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways, now behold, God, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them for a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's nobody who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and delivered us into the power of our iniquities. So up until this point, uh, Isaiah's prayer has been full of demand and blame, right? God, you need to do something about this, and you need to come, and you really need to do something about them, okay? But here in verse 5, there's this shift in both tone and focus. And instead of demanding things of God and others, what does Isaiah do? Well, Isaiah, on behalf of Israel, he takes a good, long look in the mirror and after that good long look in the mirror, his demands begin fading into confessions. Do you notice that? The demands give way into confession. I mean, how, how beautiful and how rare is it in today's world is the candor we find in verse 5. He says what? Behold, God, you were angry for we sinned and we continued in him for a very long time. And shall we still be saved? And it's all the more breathtaking when you realize that just a few verses earlier, Isaiah has basically said the exact opposite thing. Okay? Because in Isaiah 63 17, Isaiah is looking at and acknowledging Israel's sinfulness. And here's what he says Isaiah 63 17. Listen to this. He says, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? God, why do you cause us to stray from your ways? Okay, so this is Isaiah. A few verses earlier, acknowledging Israel's sinfulness, but then just basically blaming it all on God. God, yeah, we sinned, but I mean, you should have done more to keep us from strain, which is kind of like a toddler who's just learned the art of blaming. Any of you have toddlers who've learned the art of blaming? And he, and he ate 10 cookies while you weren't looking. And he's got a stomach and there are crumbs all over his face. You're like, Isaiah, did you eat those 10 cookies? Like, I didn't eat the cookies. There are crumbs all over your face. Boy, did you eat the cookies? Okay, you know what? I did eat the cookies. I ate the cookies. I ate all 10 of them. But you made the cookies and you made me and so me eating the cookies is basically your fault maybe God's fault too God made you you made me you made the cookies 80% of the blame to you 20% to God but there's definitely 0% of the blame to me can I have another cookie please and so Isaiah he's been doing a lot of demanding been doing a lot of blaming but here in verse 5 he starts confessing and it is Difficult to explain how profound a breakthrough this is in human history in general, but in the biblical story in particular. Right? I mean, think about this. Uh, the Bible is really, in a lot of ways, set in motion with the book of Exodus, what happens in the Exodus. And I, I'll remind you real quick. So the Hebrew people they're in bondage in Egypt, right? God delivers them, parts the Red Sea for Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. They get out into the wilderness, but they struggle in the wilderness still got all this baggage from Egypt. They want to go back there. And so God patiently leads them through the wilderness and brings them into the promised land. And things are pretty good in the promised land. But there's still struggles. Israel struggles with her neighbors. There's always fights. And she's filled with injustice and idolatry herself. And so eventually she goes back into exile in Babylon. That's what we just talked about. But then God finally brings them out of exile again, brings them back to the promised land again. But even though they're back in the promised land again, after being delivered miraculously by the living God again, there are still all these struggles, okay? So notice what Isaiah does here. It's like he he takes a step back, okay? And he puts all Israelite history up on the board. And he starts connecting the dots a little bit. You know, and he goes, hmm. So we were in slavery in Egypt, and there were problems. And then we were out in the wilderness, wandering around, and there were problems. They were in the promised land, promised land. There's still problems. And then we were back in exile in Babylon. still problems. And then we made it back to the promised land again. And there are still problems. You know, it's almost like no matter where we go, Egypt, the wilderness, the promised land, Babylon, back to the promised land again. It's almost like no matter where we go, our problems just keep following us around. It's so weird. I don't see anybody back there. Hmm, I don't know. It's it's almost enough to make you think that the primary problem is us. Oh, it couldn't be that. It must be something else. I need you to hear this. Few things will determine more about you, more about your life than your willingness to make confession a more common action than demand and blame. Okay? Okay? few things are going to determine more about you the way your life goes than your willingness to confess more than you demand or blame because you all know people and you've probably been a person I certainly have whose lives are so filled with demand and blame and when your life becomes so defined by demand and blame your life just becomes really miserable doesn't it because everybody always disappoints you and everybody always offends you and everybody always lets you down and you know what sometimes people do disappoint you and sometimes people are offensive and sometimes people do let you down including you and while demand and blame can and need to be expressed in healthy ways they do you cannot build a healthy life on a foundation of demand and blame No, the only foundation for a healthy life is confession. Saying, God, there are a lot of problems in the world. I would love for you to do something about it. I expect you to do something about it. There's a lot of demand and blame to go around. But I confess and I accept that the primary problem for which I am responsible is me. There's plenty, there's a lifetime of work right here, baby, without me worrying about you. And so, Isaiah, on behalf of Israel, he makes this breakthrough that so few of us are able to make. If you've had arguments with your spouse before, you know it all comes down. It's just demand and blame, demand and blame. Who's going to blink first and start confessing, right? That's what it always comes down to. Isaiah does it. And how does he do it? Where does the breakthrough come from? Where does the honesty and the humility come from to do this? Let's read verses 8 through 9 again to wrap up. He says, Yet you, O Lord, you are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter and all of us are the work of your hand. So don't be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your children. And I really don't think it's hyperbolic to say that human history, certainly the biblical story, it all hinges on this first sentence in verse eight. And I want you to just hear this, receive it. Isaiah, after saying all this stuff, he says, "What? Yet you, O Lord, you're our Father. We're the work of your hands, man. Isaiah has been caught in this posture of demand and blame, demand and blame. And he finally breaks through into confession. And he's able to do that. Why? Because he has remembered something. He has remembered that God is his Father. And nothing can nullify God's faithfulness. To his children. Isaiah has been emboldened to confess Israel's sinfulness because the rock bottom of Isaiah's faith is God's faithfulness, not Israel's. <laughs> Let's end with this. When we get sucked into what I, uh, what I call the demand and blame vortex, you feel it spinning around nowadays, everything's just getting kind of sucked into it. When we get sucked into the demand and blame vortex, it's because we have not truly understood and received our belovedness. Because once you have received your belovedness, the unconditional belovedness that is the gospel, once you have truly understood that, been rooted in that, and you walk around with that, you are freed, man. You are freed to walk the world with radical honesty and humility because you don't have anything to be afraid of anymore because God has gladly taking responsibility for you because you are his child and your sinfulness cannot nullify your father's faithfulness to you, right? And that's the gospel, right? Your sinfulness cannot nullify your father's faithfulness to you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're gonna do later. I don't care what you walk around with. Nothing, nothing. Your sinfulness cannot nullify your father's faithfulness to you. All your little bitty knows to God cannot stand up to God's eternal, indestructible yes to you in Jesus Christ. And when I look around, I look around this, this wonderful, but uh, wild and insane world of ours. What I see is a demanding and blaming crowd of people who fear they've been orphaned because they don't understand that they're the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. That's what I see. And it falls to us to receive that belovedness ourselves daily, to receive that and walk around with it, and then go show and tell it to a world that fears it's been orphaned and desperately needs to know its Father. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. Thank you for old friends and new friends that have gathered this morning to worship you. And God, we confess that we struggle confessing. We confess that we'd rather demand things and we'd rather, we'd rather blame. And those things have their place. But the most fundamental posture of our heart has got to be confession. Confessing that we have sinned and sinned a lot. And so we just ask that you would not be angry beyond measure. And you would remember that we are your children. I pray in these moments that for a lot of us who in really profound ways in our hearts, we, we fear we've been orphaned. We're still walking around thinking we've got something to prove and show and earn and we've got to secure our own future. And I, I just pray, God, that, that you would start this work in our hearts this morning where we could, we could start to accept our unconditional acceptedness and that rooted in that Confident in that. We could then go out into the world free of anxiety, fear, insecurity. Welcoming the world back home to its Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.